0: Welcome once again to Leto's Law. Here's Steve Leto. Ronnie sent me notes so, and, Steve, check out this case out of Texas. This is going to blow your mind. And my mind was blown. Okay, this is going to be a longer video, but trust me, it's worth it. Because you've got a crazy, crazy set of facts where a man got charged with a crime. And when he went to court, the prosecutors asked the judge, they said, Your Honor, this guy wants to raise some defenses. We don't think he should be allowed to raise them. And so we want a motion to eliminate, and I'll explain that in a second, to prevent him from raising a couple particular defenses. And the trial judge said, okay. (laughs) Now, usually, if you make a ruling like that, you have a hearing first where you actually ask the defense which of these arguments are you going to use, if any, and do you have any evidence to back them up? And if you do, then you're allowed to use them. If the prosecution can simply walk into court and say, your honor... We've decided not to let them use these defenses. And the judge goes, okay, um, how is that a fair trial? (laughs) That's not how it works. But this is not even from a news story because Ronnie sent me the link to the opinion, okay? And the opinion is by the Court of Criminal Appeals of Texas. So this is the opinion on appeal. This case has what we call tortured history. It's gone back and forth, back and forth, a whole bunch of times. And the net result is this man does get a new trial. Sadly, sadly, this has now been running through the court system for years. And, and <laughs> it's a crazy case called Rogers versus the state of Texas. Of course, in the trial court to be captioned as the people of the state of Texas versus Rogers. But some states on appeal put the appealing party, the appellant, first to indicate who's brought the appeal so you don't get confused by that. So it's in the Court of Criminal Appeals of Texas, uh, Rogers versus Texas, and this is appellant's petition for a review of what's going on here. Appellant was originally charged in a two-count indictment for burglary of a habitation, which is sometimes a distinction they make. Did you break into a house that people live in, or did you break into a building where people don't live? Okay, And they predicated that on either the intent to commit a felony or attempting and having committed a felony therein. Now, Count One alleged that appellant possessed the intent to commit aggravated assault, and then uh, they alleged that appellant completed the commission of the aggravated assault. And they also said there was a scheme with intent to murder and the commission of an attempted murder. <laughs> Work with me on this one. It's worth it. From the same incident, but by a second indictment, appellant was separately charged with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. Now, here's the deal. During a pre-trial hearing, the state informed the trial court that they would waive some of this and proceed solely with the burglary of a habitation based on the commission of aggravated assault as charged in the indictment. So they said, we're just going to proceed with the burglary and the commission of an aggravated assault. And the state also proceeded on the second indictment alleging the aggravated assault. And they tried those two together. So they said, okay, burglary, and the aggravated assault. Keep in mind that it only works as burglary in this indictment so long as he goes into the home without permission and commits the crime in there of aggravated assault. Okay? Now, the man was convicted of both of those, and he was sentenced to 40 years for the burglary, 20 years for the aggravated assault to be served concurrently. Now, he took an appeal on that one, And the court found that the burglary conviction subsumed the aggravated assault conviction and thus vacated it. The Court of Appeals also held, without deciding the error first, that the trial court's failure to instruct on defensive issues was harmless. Now, that's where it gets tricky. Again, stick with me on this one. We remanded it for the Court of Appeals to decide whether the trial court erred in refusing to instruct a jury on self-defense and necessity. The Court of Appeals then concluded there was no error and that appellant failed to provide any evidence that would entitle him to a jury instruction on self-defense or necessity. Now, here's the thing. When would you offer that? After trial or before trial? Well, you'd like to offer it during the trial, but if you're told that you can't offer it during the trial, then obviously you can't offer it during the trial. The problem is, why would they tell you that you cannot offer evidence In defense of yourself. So, as we remanded to the Court of Appeals to decide, the court then concluded there was no error because the defendant failed to provide any evidence. Following the Court of Appeals' opinion after remand in January of 2019, we granted review for the second time. Having already decided to harm unanimously, the only remaining legal issue is whether the error analysis was flawed. After a thorough review of the case, we conclude that the trial court made a mistake by refusing to grant the requested defensive charge of self-defense. As we previously held, appellant was harmed at every stage of this process. So, again, hanging here for the facts, we're getting there. Prior to jury selection, the state had filed a pretrial motion in limine seeking to exclude facts that went to the heart of the appellant's defense. And in limine is Latin, which basically means on the threshold. And motions in limine are brought on the threshold of trial, right before trial. They're usually brought literally the morning of trial or the days preceding a trial. And they're like last minute things being brought up right before trial. And so the motion limine sought to exclude facts that were part of the appellant's defense. Specifically, the state sought to prevent appellant from raising any defensive issues during voir dire it's questioning the jury, opening statements, cross-examination, and if the appellant chose to testify, he would not even be allowed to testify to the facts that would show that he had a defense. <laughs> I mean, I guess you can't blame the prosecution for asking, but you can blame the judge for granting such a silly motion. Appellant's own testimony, again, was excluded if it addressed his own defense. Despite a complete lack of testimony to support the state's motion, the trial court agreed with the state and ordered appellant to comply with that motion and ruling. Appellant objected, and the trial court made a mistake by overruling it. So the prosecution said, Your Honor, we think he might be tempted to argue self-defense in this case. And we don't want him to be able to do that. The judge said, okay, you cannot argue self-defense. Like I said, what an actual judge would do is say, oh, would the facts merit a defense of self-defense? And let the two sides argue that out before the trial is started. And yes, you can have people testify before a trial too. If allowed to testify, I would testify thus. And you can do that by affidavit or by live testimony. But when a court says, no, they've said they don't want you using a defense of this. We're not going to let you. (laughs) This is crazy. So appellant's testimony in front of the jury entitled him to the requested defensive charge of self-defense. Here's some of the facts. Appellant testified that he had been engaged in a lengthy affair with the wife of the victim in this case. The complainant. Okay. It was she who gave appellant a passcode and key to her family home during their relationship. So she's taken up with another man. She gave him a key and the passcode to the alarm system. And then he testifies that he had then entered the house on the day in question at the girlfriend's request to feed the cats. So the girlfriend had said, could you go to my house and feed my cats? He has a key, the passcode. He goes, fine, I'll feed the cats. He parked his truck away from the house because he doesn't want the neighbors to talk. <laughs> but also, theoretically, if the husband were to drive by and see how you know, a truck in the driveway, he might raise an eyebrow. So he parked his truck a ways away. He uh, walked to the house, used the key and the passcode to get in. He then fed the cats. While feeding the cats, appellant noticed complainant approaching the house. Here comes the husband And this guy's inside the house. Now, I'll grant you that mistakes have been made at this point. Okay? But, got to follow me on this one. Appellant testified that he could not get the back door to open. So he went into a room that the girlfriend had described as her sanctuary room. And he tried to climb through a window that she had called her escape route. In addition to the window being stuck, he could not fit through the window. So he hid in the sanctuary room closet where the complainant kept many of his firearms in a gun safe. One of those, however, was on top of the safe. So appellant also testified that while in the closet, he heard the complainant, the husband, rummage around the house before suddenly appearing at the closet door in an aggressive manner brandishing a hunting knife and had it pointed at the guy here, and the husband shouted, you, in a loud, booming voice, as he approached appellant in the closet while still holding the knife. When the appellant came face-to-face with the husband, who had the hunting knife in hand, then appellant grabbed from the top of the gun safe the loaded 380, and he testified at this point, That while he was still holding the knife, the man reached forward and tried grabbing the gun from his hand, which then discharged while they struggled for the gun. Now, you have to understand something. That's this man's testimony. A jury does not have to believe it. You don't have to believe it. I don't have to believe it. The question is, does he have the right to tell it to a jury and then say, I was involved in a struggle? Of self-defense. That's what we're getting at here. And the prosecution said, no, we're not going to let him raise that as an argument during opening, closing, cross, direct, anything. He can testify to some facts, but his attorney is not allowed to ask the jury, by the way, my client was clearly defending himself. Court said he couldn't do that. So, The two parties, that is the appellant and the victim, who, by the way, lived, testified about a struggle that ensued following the gunshot. And those, of course, vastly vary. So they've got two completely different stories, which, by the way, happens all the time in real life and in court. Okay? So the trial court had previously stated that uh, if it gets to where we have an instruction on self-defense... I will give you adequate time to explain that to the panel, but that did not happen. So, when counsel for the defendant was questioned about his state of mind at the moment, rather than conduct any additional hearings outside the jury's presence, the trial judge ordered the direct examination to stop. He excused the jury and admonished him and his lawyer by stating, you may not venture off into anything that alludes to or invades the province of (laughs) self-defense. So appellant also provided additional testimony in a bill of exception. And I mentioned earlier an affidavit. And they often have a thing called an offer of proof. Offer of proof. So let's suppose that you have a trial going on and a witness is on the stand. And I say, by the way, let's talk about the Thursday. What happened on Thursday? Other side of justice, your honor, what happened on Thursday is irrelevant. I say, no, your honor, what happened on Thursday is highly relevant. Now, if the jury is there, we can't argue in front of the jury about this because if I start explaining what happened on Thursday and it's not relevant, you don't want the jury to hear that. So what will often happen is a judge will call attorneys up the bench and say, what's going on here? And I'm going to say, look, your honor, on Thursday, the following things happened. That's relevant. Other side goes either that didn't happen or that's not relevant or how do we know that's what he's going to talk about? And so I would at that point say, your honor, I'd like to make an offer of proof. And if it goes this way, the judge would then say, uh, jury, we're going to take a quick break here. Go out, stretch your legs, get a drink of water, do what you got to do, check your voicemail messages, whatever you got to do. And we're then going to allow me to ask questions about what happened on Thursday. And then after hearing the testimony, the judge can make a ruling and say, yes, that gets in, or no, that does not get in. The judge rules, no, it doesn't get in, then bring the jury back in, and I skip over, and I move on. But the judge says, that looks relevant to me. Then you bring the jury back in, and believe it or not, I ask the same questions over and get this information into the record, but this time in front of the jury. If you make an offer of proof, and the trial court says, no, I'm not going to let you put in proofs on that. It's actually a great position to be in on appeal because you can say we were going to put in an offer of proof. The judge wouldn't let us. And so what you make sure you do is on the record, and you don't do it in front of the jury, but quite often after the jury is let out, the judge will say, is there anything for the record? And you stand up and you say, Your Honor, for the record, I'd like to remind the uh, court that uh, plaintiff or the prosecution or defendant or whoever I am, uh, we offered, we made an offer of proof with respect to testimony regarding the instances and incidents and what happened on Thursday. And I'd give more information than that, but i make it very, very clear. And we offered to have testimony on that because we believe it's highly relevant, but the court denied that request. The judge will say, thank you very much, but now it's on the record. So in this case, they filed a bill of exception, and in it, they provided additional testimony, which could have come out if the court hadn't stopped them and said, you cannot address this. Appellant's affair with the wife lasted from July of 2011 until the date of the offense in 2013, so almost two years. According to the appellant who's the defendant in this case, they exchanged 70,000 text messages during their relationship and 187 on the date of this event. Now, you might say, Steve, what does that prove? Oh, you'll see. Appellant also testified that the uh, wife's husband had discovered the relationship between the two two months before the offense by looking at her Facebook page. Now, the Court of appeal says we need not consider the bill of exception in this case. We mention it to highlight the actions of the trial judge, which prevented appellant from putting on a complete defense because those facts above, if true, are relevant. To reiterate, the state sought and succeeded in keeping pertinent information from the jury based on the trial court's motion in limine ruling, the ruling they'd made at the request of the prosecution. And that erroneous ruling prevented testimony that further corroborated the affair, which then went to the underlying defense of self-defense. So when addressing a trial court's decision to deny a defensive issue in a jury charge, We view the evidence in the light most favorable to the requested submission. And here's a thing that a lot of people don't understand. So let's suppose that you've got a case that's on trial. Everyone testifies about something and the defendant wants to get up and testify to something crazy. Something crazy. No one's going to believe it. But is he entitled to testify to it? And generally speaking, yes. You've got to let the information get in, and if the jury chooses to disbelieve it, well, that's, that's up to them. But they have to look at it and ask themselves uh, whether it's something that should get in or not. And when we talk about a case like this where the defendant says, I had evidence, I wanted to get in, testimony I wanted to get in, that would have exonerated me. The court's got to look at that and go, okay, let's let's take a look at it and see if it does. And if it does, we kind of got to go with that and say it should have gotten in. Otherwise, the guy doesn't get a fair trial, which, as you know, you're entitled to because you are innocent until proven guilty. Appellate courts review a claim of charge error through a two-step process, first determining whether there's an error and how much harm resulted therefrom. When the defendant preserves the alleged error by objecting, as appellant has done here, The appellate court must reverse, if the error caused him to suffer, some harm. Some harm. So that's a low standard. Some harm. Doesn't have to be catastrophic harm. Doesn't have to be the harm that changed the case. Some harm. This court previously ruled unanimously that any error in the present case was not harmless. Therefore, it would rise to the level. Moreover, the U.S. Supreme Court has explained, as well as the Constitution, a presumption of innocence in favor of the accused is the undoubted law, axiomatic and elementary, and its enforcement lies at the foundation of the administration of our criminal law. So this is important. So even a minimum quantity of evidence is sufficient to raise a defense, as long as the evidence would support, as long as the evidence would support a rational jury finding as to defense. So if somebody had said, uh, "I want to get up and testify that aliens came down." And while they were probing me, they accidentally hurt the defendant. Uh, they accidentally hurt the victim. A judge could look at that and go, okay, a rational jury is not going to find that evidence to be worthwhile at all. Now, quite frankly, I'm not sure why you'd keep that out. Because I just say, yeah, go ahead, do it. The jury might think you're nutty, but, but they're not going to buy it. But the question is, would the evidence support a rational jury finding this? okay. So the state contends, that's the prosecution, that the trial court should prohibit a jury from returning an irrational verdict. So they're actually saying, we kept him from making this stupid self-defense argument because if the jury had found in his favor, it would have been irrational. (laughs) And the Court of Appeals says, following the state's logic, it is categorically irrational to apply self-defense as a defense to burglary. Now, here's the thing. Keep in mind that the man is in someone else's house. He's there with permission, according to his testimony. He's confronted by somebody in the house that he says attacked him. Now, a lot of people might not have sympathy for him and say, oh, dude, you're in someone else's house. You get you get what you, you know, you, you deserve what you get. He says he had consent to be in the home and that the shot that ensued happened after a struggle Regarding that gun. So we get into a whole discussion on self defense and so on. And the court on appeal says a defendant's testimony alone may be sufficient to raise a defensive theory requiring a charge, meaning that requiring the charge be given to the jury and say, the defendant has raised an argument of self defense. It's up to you whether you're going to believe that or not, but that's what he's argued. And then his attorney could get up and argue it to the jury and say, remember all these facts? This all played into it because here we go with all the evidence that the man would have used if he'd been allowed. He knew the name of the cats. He described their bowls and the location of the food in great detail. He had fed them 15 to 20 times. He also testified that this included the day in question because he placed them outside with food in them. He testified that he noticed the cat bowls were not in their usual spots because he regularly brought them back inside at night to prevent raccoons from stealing the food. He also testified that he received a key as well as the alarm code to the house from the wife. The detective testified that the appellant provided him the key to the house while he's being interviewed by the detective on the day of the incident. The detective also relied on the key to access the house so that the scene could be photographed and examined by police. The appellant and the wife had exchanged approximately 850 text messages and two phone calls the four days prior to this and through the day of the event, and 187 of those text messages occurred on the day of the incident. Appellant explained that the dimming of the light that he saw was the uh, victim jumping in front of the door holding a knife, and he just shouts, you, very loudly, and he's in kind of a linebacker stance He's got his knees bent and he's moving the knife up and down in his right hand. And he described that he took a step back as the victim started moving into the closet. And only then did he grab the gun. Now, you don't have to believe that. And a jury might not believe it. But the question is, can he testify to that? And can his attorney then argue in the closing argument? By the way, could have also argued in the opening statement that this is actually a case of self-defense. You're going to hear that the defendant was in someone else's house, but he was there with permission. He'd been there before. And what happened was he was confronted by the other homeowner. And something then led to a struggle and the defendant acted in self-defense. All the defendant is asking here is to be able to make that argument to a jury. Because he was told, and his attorney was told, you cannot argue self-defense based on these facts. (laughs) And this, of course, is crazy because that would be self-defense if these facts are true as alleged. Or at least it could be. At least it could be. We therefore cannot agree with the prosecution's proposition that if one party is acting reasonably, the other can never be. Even under our standards of review, we acknowledge that reasonable men may disagree... And can still remain reasonable. We also are not certain, contrary to the prosecution's presumption, that complainant was automatically justified as a matter of law to utilize deadly force against appellant simply because he never gave appellant consent to be there. Texas law does not blanket authorize the use of deadly force against trespassers, especially in the middle of the afternoon. And yes, that does make a difference. If you're surprised at night by somebody in your house, it's different than being surprised during the day. It might be a small distinction, but it's a distinction nonetheless. This court points out that the prosecution is now saying that this court on appeal should consider and accept as true the following facts. Appellant was never asked by complainant's wife on a date in question to stop by the house and feed the cats. <laughs> okay. Appellant had not exchanged thousands of text messages with her. Appellant had not been given both the key and alarm code to the home. And complainant's stepdaughter had not heard her mother ask appellant to go to the house. So in the state's version of events, complainant's wife had no authority to give appellant consent to enter the house. Taking the state's theory to its logical conclusion, complainant would have had an automatic right to shoot an invitee including any manner of repair or service person who is legally there under the wife's consent, this result would be unreasonable. Because the prosecution is actually arguing here that if the man comes into his own home and finds someone else there, that someone else is automatically in the wrong and the homeowner can do what he wants. And they point out that the wife could have called a plumber and said, I've got an emergency. And the plumber comes over And while the plumber is plumbing, in walks the husband and goes, hey, I didn't invite the plumber in. The same would obviously be true for an electrician, cable guy, anybody else. And the state here, uh, Court of Appeals, is pointing out the absurdity of that argument. It is disingenuous on the state's part to convince the trial court, pretrial, without any evidence that defendant was not entitled to put on any of his evidence and then take the position that this evidence never existed on appeal. It is irrational and inconsistent with the federal and Texas constitutions because it deprived him of putting on any defense. So the court goes on further with this. But keep in mind, and by the way, the court of appeals eventually reversed it, and sent it back down for a new trial. So the man will get a trial at which he can then make these arguments involving these facts and say, I had a legal right to be there. I may have been sneaking around because I didn't want the husband to find out, but the wife had said, go over there and feed the cats. Gave me a key, gave me the key code. I'd done it before. I did it again. And so if that's true, it's not trespassing and that was one of the other things here is that it required it required that to be the case for both of these charges to hold up and if either charge failed then they both failed and so this case is actually quite a lengthy opinion and so i kind of glossed over that however as i pointed out previously there's two things to consider with evidence okay that are important in this discussion and one is whether evidence is admissible will it get Into court. Will it get into evidence? Can I get something into evidence? Just because it's admissible does not mean a jury's got to believe it. And juries are given the instruction that says, roughly, it is up to you to decide the value, the weight, the believability, whatever you want to call it. How much importance to give any piece of evidence is entirely up to you. So, You can look at a piece of evidence and go, we buy that. We believe that 100%. You can also look at it and go, no, don't believe it at all. We choose to disregard that evidence if we want to or something in the middle. And there's several instructions on this, but one of them regards just credibility and the weight to give to evidence. And quite often, evidence we're talking about here is spoken it's testimony. It's somebody testifying. So if I walk into court and I got a, 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 a thing, okay, and I say this, you know, Your Honor, I lay a foundation for it, a witness testifies about it, and I go, I want that thing put into evidence, and the judge admits it. Well, the instructions is going to say, when you go back into, into the deliberation room, you've got the right to look at this as you see fit. Disregard it or make it the key of the case. Whatever you want to do. It's up to you. That's what the juries do. But when someone gets on the stand and testifies, the words come out of their mouth. And the guy says, I had permission to be there because the wife who I was having an affair with gave me a key and a key code to go feed my cats. And I do that, okay? Now the jury could choose to believe this guy like it was the voice of God. Or they could choose to disregard every single word he said including when he swore to tell the truth. And that's their, that's their province. That's what they're allowed to do. And so that's a spectrum. Believe everything, disbelieve everything, or anything in the middle. And interestingly, when it comes to testimony, jurors are also told that you can watch the witness's demeanor. You can listen to the tone of voice. You can study what they say. And ask yourself, do I believe this? Do I not believe this? It's entirely up to you. And by the way, in a criminal trial, if there's 12 jurors. Ask all 12 what they think. You're going to 12 different opinions. And so when they go back in the room and close the door and start deliberating, quite often these debates break out over whether you believed that guy or not. And so this case probably would hinge on do you believe that guy or not? But a jury doesn't have to believe him. They can if they want to. So this opinion talks about the issue of whether he should be allowed to put in the defense in the first place. And the state had argued and gotten a trial court to say, no, you can't even raise that argument based on these facts. And the trial court screwed up badly. And so the trial court should have said to prosecution, you might not believe him. A jury might not believe him, but he's entitled to testify. And he can testify to that. And he's entitled to make an argument that arises naturally from it. And the natural argument you get from the fact that he had permission to be there is self-defense. So, again, you don't have to believe it. Let's just pretend you're on the jury. You can choose to completely disbelieve it. But the man's got the right to make the argument to a jury. So that's what the case is all about. So i got to thank Ronnie for sending it to me. And uh, I've already oh found it. <laughs> Too much paper. Ronnie sent to me, and it's a case from the Court of Criminal Appeals of Texas. Rogers versus the state of Texas. The man will get a new trial. And uh, what a waste of judicial resources back and forth. And this simply because the original trial court screwed up. There you go. So thanks for sending it, Ronnie. Questions or comments, put them below. Otherwise, I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you for watching Lato's Law. Campers are nature's way of feeding mosquitoes.